Throughout this 50-day season of Easter, we've been reading what we call post-resurrection stories, stories of Jesus and his followers um, after his resurrection and before his ascension. And so today we read a final story, the Sunday before Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit. These, in fact, are the last words of Luke's gospel, the last um, moments that Jesus spent with his followers. He has gathered them all together, and he says to them, this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and arise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I get started this morning, I have a few things I'd like to uh, bring to your attention. One special thanks to Grace Fowler. It's great to see you today. We've always enjoyed Uh, listening to you and your worship leadership at our 927 service. What I think I enjoy the most is I'm in a spot where I can see your parents on the left side, fourth, fifth row, and they're just beaming as you're singing. I don't know if you see that or not. And to Anna Grace, Anna Grace is here as a graduating, or now I suppose a graduated senior from Salisbury High School, headed out to uh, Appalachian State this August. We are so thankful for her and uh, proud of her and all of our seniors um, who, uh, who are taking that next step in their journey. So it's great to have you and, and uh, them in our thoughts and in, in our prayers. And also a word about Memorial Day. You know, it's, it strikes me that during this pandemic, it's easy to overlook days like, like this, um, the significance, at least, um, of a day like Memorial Day, which we celebrate tomorrow, of course, but we shouldn't. It's important for us, isn't it, to remember and to give thanks for those who have given their lives for the sake of freedom. I'm thinking of the foot soldiers in the Revolutionary War, those who died on the shores of Normandy, naval officers from the War of 1812 to men and women who bravely fought and died in places like Saigon and Kabul, the Battle of Bloody Ridge in Korea to the 18 soldiers who died in the Battle of Mogadishu in in Somalia. It's easy to take their sacrifice for granted, but, but freedom is never free, and someone has always had to pay the price. We give thanks today for those who did. And also, finally, a special um, word of thanks. I know that we have a lot of folks who are watching our worship service this morning who are otherwise not affiliated with St. John's. Thank you. 
for joining us. We, we truly are humbled by it. I don't know how you came across this worship service, but I hope that you hear this very personal word of welcome. We are fully aware that you may have no other contact with St. John's, but God has brought you here today for whatever reason, and on behalf of this congregation and our staff, we want to say thanks. You are welcomed here. Um, you are loved here, and we pray that this time of worship, uh, that some way, some special way, God will touch you uh, through this broadcast. And of course, to all those who continue to support our ministry here at St. John's, thank you for some that's not been easy during these last few weeks, but you've been faithful, and your gifts have made a very big difference in the way that we've been able to continue in worship and provide uh, a measure of hope and courage when we need it most. So thank you for your good stewardship. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to a time of hearing your good word, and we need to hear your word of truth and of hope, so thank you for it. May the words of my mouth and the inspiration of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're in week four of a four-week sermon series on 1 Peter. It's a short letter that Peter, or one of his followers, we don't really know, wrote to Christians in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey or so. Uh, they were Christians who were having a rough time of it. Um, they were suffering in a way that we don't fully know, although some um, likely were, were experiencing persecution by the Roman Empire. Others were struggling because they were a very small group of brand-new Christians in a community that was not very hospitable. To, uh, to Christians. We've connected this letter uh, to our own time, not surprisingly, uh, living during this global pandemic. We've talked about being a living hope. We've talked about being a living stone. Last week, Pastor Laura even invited you to do some yoga to, uh, to enjoy a shavasana, right? <laughs> uh, a, a place of great peace during a time of great turmoil. And all of that is so important and so true. This week, though, we're going to dive into chapter 4, when Peter gives specific instructions about how to be a Christian in times of, of distress. So that's where we're headed today. But first, I want to place this, oops, I want to place this reading in a broader context. Last Thursday was Ascension Day. Now, I'm fully aware that probably you weren't waiting with bated breath for Ascension Day. You weren't preparing Ascension Day celebrations or, or giving Ascension Day gifts or parties or whatever else. And that's probably only because Hallmark or Amazon has not figured that out yet. Uh, when they do, then, you know, who knows what will happen. But it's important to know that Ascension has always been a major festival, a significant festival in the life of the church. It's been celebrated ever since the fourth century. It's one of the earliest festivals that the church has, has commemorated. It's always the 40th day of Easter, 10 days before Pentecost. It recalls the day, of course, that Jesus ascended into heaven, leaving his disciples literally staring into the sky, wondering, filled with anxiousness, I'm sure, afraid. Think about it. I mean, really, think, try to place yourself in their shoes. They had spent every moment with Jesus for three years. They, they traveled with him throughout Palestine. They heard him preach. They heard him teach. They saw him perform miracles, walk on water, feeding, feed 5,000 people. They watched him enter into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and then to die a brutal death on a cross. Then, of course, to, to know that he had been risen from the dead, never did they imagine that any of that was possible, but it was. 
Then Jesus spent the next six weeks or so alongside them, comforting them, encouraging them, preparing them for what was to come, which was this, that he would literally ascend into heaven, his physical body no longer present with them. He was not present with them in person. Just imagine how dramatic that moment was. Their lives were changed. They, they were living in, in, in the most dramatic paradigm shift in the history of the world. These blue-collar workers from the country towns of Galilee, well, I mean, they were told to go far beyond Galilee into all of the earth proclaiming the good news of God to literally change the world with God's message of love, preaching, teaching, healing, just like Jesus did. And with Jesus present, that was all okay. They knew that they could because they knew they could do anything. But now he was gone, and they were left staring into heaven. Now what? They must have thought. Friday was supposed to be graduation day for, for many of our high school seniors, 17 and 18-year-olds who just yesterday, it seems, were being dropped off at, at kindergarten. I wish they could have walked across that stage, no doubt. And perhaps they will. Later this summer, we keep holding out hope for that. But the, in the absence of that time-honored ritual when kids become adults, I sensed a collective sigh, looking up, thinking, now what? You know, there have been moments during this pandemic when I've wondered the same thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've loved spending more time, extra time with our whole family together, more time in our backyard and on our front porch than we've ever spent. We've been given a glimpse of a simpler life, and there's a lot to like about that. But at the same time, I know that a lot of folks, a lot of places have, have been hurt and have struggled. But lately, if I'm being honest, I've been wondering about the future, especially the future of the church. That things will change, no doubt. You understand that, right? I mean, things will change. Things have already changed. Just all around us, colleges, for example, are scurrying to figure out how to teach. Cheap air travel, I'm pretty sure that's quickly coming to an end. The Cheerwine Festival and I guess all festivals and even Memorial Day fireworks and celebrations like those, well, they've been canceled for now at least. Summer camps, we've learned this past week, have closed their doors. The time on our campfire will not burn this summer. You can almost feel a good portion of America, I don't know, maybe the whole world, lifting their hands up to heaven, begging, now, now what? This answer, this answer may not be at all satisfying, but it is very true. We don't know. We don't. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, much less next week, much less next month. So what do we do in the midst of that kind of uncertainty? Well, we place our trust and our hope in God, of course, absolutely. That's what we've been sort of focusing a great deal on these last three weeks in this letter of, uh, in this book of First Peter. But then what? 
Okay, I get that. Sure, place our hope and trust in God. But then what? What does that look like, for example, on a daily basis? What does that look like in the way that we re-enter the world as we try to find a new normal, as we try to build trust in our neighbor and our friend and, oh yeah, the cashier at Food Lion who just might, I don't know, just might infect me with a, with a virus that I've been told to avoid at all costs. Now what? No doubt, human history is filled with examples of pandemics. This is not the first time we've faced this as humanity. World wars, likewise, major disasters that have all shaken us to our core. What's interesting is that in every case throughout world history, human ambi- when human ambition collapsed, It only gave way to humanity clawing its way out of the ruins and building the remains into something new. And this, too, is interesting. In every case of collapse, there was no option to go back. And that's not an option now. Ultimately, that's been a good thing. As it turns out, might not feel like it in the moment, but in the course of history, it certainly has been a good thing. Because in our faith perspective, looking through the lens of God, because the God of history is forever leading us forward, there's this constant march forward, this journey forward to a different, more hopeful place with, with according to God, and ultimately a desire of restoring to us, for us, this Garden of Eden. Remember that place, by the way? You remember that, that place that was so beautifully, poetically described in the first couple of chapters of Genesis? Unfortunately, if you remember your, your early children's books, sin and pride pulled us out of that garden, but God's desire has always been for us to return to where there is perfect peace and harmony, where, where the psalmist says trees will clap their hands and, and the rivers will shout for joy and the sheep and the animals, they will celebrate. And as far as us humans, we will be wild with delight. That's God's ultimate goal for us. That's the good news, as it turns out. That's the gospel. It's rooted in God's promise to put everything right at last, to bring heaven and earth together in what will finally be the fullness, finally, of God's kingdom, a restoration of the garden. That's where we were in the first chapter of Genesis, and that's the vision given to John in the last chapter of Revelation, God's desire to return us to that place. It all comes into clear focus through Jesus, through whom God does the putting right thing up close and personal to be for us the fullness of the kingdom of God, this Garden of Eden restored. That's the gospel. Really, if anyone asks you, that's the gospel. And that's what Peter is talking about in chapter 4 when he says that we can enjoy a glimpse of that kingdom as we, in verse 8, as we maintain Uh, love, constant love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. As we extend hospitality to one another, oh, without complaining, he, he adds, 
When we act as good stewards of this manifold, this amazing grace of God, as we serve one another with whatever gift each of us has received, right? That's in, in, in so doing, it gives to us this beautiful, this remarkable glimpse of God. Now, don't forget, Peter is writing to folks who are facing all kinds of distress, all kinds of worry, people who desperately need to see a glimpse of something better, right? They've seen enough hardship and distress. They need something else. And suddenly, these words of Peter sound like the answer to our question, now what? Give this world, give this, your neighbor, a glimpse of God's beautiful kingdom of this garden restored. Let your example be the most powerful witness that your friend, your neighbor, someone across the street, the cashier at Food Lion, the best example they will ever experience. How? By maintaining constant love through hospitality without complaining, by serving one another, using whatever gift you have been given so that God's grace and God's glory might be fully revealed. In other words, live like Jesus. The first century church, small and struggling, wondering if they would ever survive, they did just that. And their witness it changed the world. We're getting ready to sing. Rob is going to lead us into the singing of the world's most famous hymn written by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress. Now, we remember, of course, that Luther helped to bring about the Great Reformation and force much-needed change in a, in a very corrupt church. But we often overlook that Luther lived during a global pandemic, the highly contagious bubonic plague that sent shockwaves throughout the continent. The plague was a remnant of the Black Plague, which had killed 60% of Europe's population over the course of seven years during the 14th century. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's a remarkable devastation. The word alone, plague, frightened people. It sent them into hiding and utter isolation. They believed it was punishment for God who must just be angry for all of their sin. Well, in the summer of 1527, word spread that the plague had returned and had returned with a vengeance, especially to Germany. And so in Wittenberg, where Luther lived and where he taught, the entire university left town, most professors and their families fleeing the city but not Martin Luther. I mean, he felt God was calling him to minister to those who were dying of the plague. And sure enough, he knew all too well the deadly power of this cruel enemy. Two of his brothers had died of the pandemic. And so, in spite of the fact that his wife Katie was pregnant, Luther turned his home into a hospital to care for the sick and the dying. The personal strain of all of that, of living during such a time, threatened to undo Luther. He was, he was slipping into depression, an ancient foe that had, that had sort of messed with him, battled with him all of his life. But he found great strength and solace in the Word of God, especially the words of Psalm 46 that read, God is our refuge and our strength, our fortress and our might, an ever-present time in the ever-present help in the times of trouble. So, 
Luther, struggling with depression and, and the pressure of now managing a hospital and the sick and the dying in his town, Luther knew that he could never prevail by his own strength. And so he put his hope and trust in the one who is our refuge and our strength. In the midst of a global pandemic, as he battled his own personal demons, Luther wrote the enduring words that have lifted millions of hearts throughout the centuries. A mighty fortress is our God, a sword and shield victorious. And these words, God's word forever shall abide. No thanks to foes who fear it, for God himself fights by our side with weapons of the Spirit Were they to take our house, goods, honor, child, or spouse, though life even be wrenched away, they cannot win the day, for the kingdom is ours forever. Now what? Well, the answer seems to be pretty clear. Love each other. Care for each other. And know that God's kingdom, indeed, is forever. Amen.